0: And let's give a warm welcome to the host of The H Spot, David Hirschkopf. Thank you everyone for joining us today and you're in for a treat. This conversation will dive into some of the behind the scenes of the show Survivor and into an ice cream business. Yep, you heard me. We're linking Surviving and ice cream in this episode. My guest today is Neil Gottlieb. Some of you would know him from season 32 of survivor, Khao Rong, Cambodia, brains versus brawn versus beauty. He was evacuated due to an infection and then kicked off the jury in a special twist. But before that, he is a smart guy from New Jersey and I think went to Cornell, if I recall, and served in the Peace Corps. In 2005, he opened up three twins ice cream, originally shops, but then in 2010, opened a factory. And sadly, this year, the company closed down. So we're gonna talk about that and surviving. And I'm actually a fan of Survivor, so we're gonna start with that. So we had talked, Neil, and you had said that it was, Survivor was one of the greatest adventures ever, and you would do it again. So like, you know, what made it that way? And for you and other Survivor contestants, like, do they all feel that way and, and why?
1: I mean, I guess some survivors don't look at it as the greatest adventure of their lives. Maybe they have more exciting lives than I do, or or maybe they just kind of sat around and did nothing. But uh, for me, it was really absolutely incredible experience after having watched the show for so many years to then suddenly find yourself on a beach, hungry, half naked with cameras in your face, looking at that survivor tribe flag, just like wondering What good and bad decisions in life did i make to end up here so uh, it it was certainly an incredible experience not with the best ending but it's certainly one that i'm very thankful to have had
0: but is it exciting because like it's a tv show or is it exciting just because it's this odd experience being like on this tropical island like competing and and sort of semi-starving
1: on a beach yeah i mean the the tv show stuff kind of fades into the background because the cameras are omnipresent you never forget that they're there but you just get very used to that but it's it's this excitement that you're in you're in a game You're playing a 39 day game in which you could end up with a million dollars you know i can't think of any other experiences anything like that you know both of us being in the food business having companies you're playing a game where you hope to end up with you know some millions of dollars but you don't know when that ends. And it certainly goes much, much, much longer than 39 days. Whereas this is just a, a finite experience that can't be replicated any place else. And it might you know, give you a nice payday at the end.
0: Yeah, it's interesting though. like, they call Survivor a game, whereas like our businesses, we would never call a game. But there's that whole trend of gamification, like which I really like subscribe to, but I mean, that's obviously a different
1: subject. But, it's, but they, I mean, our businesses are games, right? I mean, you're looking at, you know, points. How many dollars do you have coming in? How many units do you have going out the door? What's the profit at the end of the year? That's that's all a gamification. It's a quantification of a real life experience in which, you know, you're deciding whether or not you're victorious or not, largely based on numbers, I would say.
0: So if you think of your business as a game, then does that make it more fun? Does approaching it that way make it more exciting and interesting? Definitely not. I
1: mean, it doesn't make (laughs) it more fun. It puts more more pressure on. And you know, games are not necessarily fun. If you go to to game theory, you know, game theory can explain whether or not you're going to end up with a bullet in your head or the other guy will. It's not. It's not all monopoly and shoots and ladders. The dark side of games.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree. Cause I guess when you picture games, you don't picture like firing people and like, you know, talking about, you know, competitive strategy and, and all these like things that happen in our industry. Absolutely. But it's all part of
1: the strategy
0: that shapes the game. Right. And strategy seems to be one
1: of the things that that's a strength of yours and that you really, really enjoy doing. Right. I mean, yes. Um, obviously coming off of, um, closing up a business, um, bringing a business to bankruptcy doesn't, I don't think I'm the, the greatest strategic thinker out there right now, but for 15 years, three twins came from nothing, starting with meager resources and was built to a national brand. So that certainly do have a lot of strengths from a strategic standpoint
0: right absolutely absolutely and and um you know my son almost applied for a job at one of your shops and i know some of his friends worked there and we loved it especially the uh, the lemon cookie ice mm-hmm. cream but with with survivor you mentioned sort of the cameras i mean do the cameras follow you everywhere like if you're going to the bathroom or changing your clothes or anything like
1: is it really like they're always there before? generally speaking if you are with another contestant you will be filmed because they don't want to miss a single second of dialogue that could help shape the outcome of the game. If you're just going off by yourself to go to the bathroom or go fill up a water bucket, they're probably not going to film you unless they think that you're looking for the idol and that you're potentially nearby. In which case, they'll definitely be on you because they want to capture that moment as well.
0: Oh, that reminds me of a question that then. so like. On the show, looking for an idol, it's like this thing, like it brands you. It's like, you know, like this bad thing. Everyone like looks at you funny. But why is that? Because like it would seem like it's just smart to try to find an idol. And like, why don't contestants like say, hey, let's all go try to find idols?
1: Because so many people don't want to find idols. They just want to sit around. And therefore, it's much easier to place a target on the back of somebody who's looking for an idol than... To just say, okay, great, good for them. They're playing the game. I mean, in the game, you're looking for any excuse to take the target that's potentially on your back and put it on someone else's. So knowing somebody's looking for an idol or even being able to insinuate that somebody's looking for an idol, even if they're not, it gives you something to feed to the crowd and say, this person is trying to outgame you and outgame me. They need to be put down. You know so you know it's it's cutthroat so any little thing that you do that could give other people evidence or you know ammunition to target you is a real thing and it can you know be that little flap of a butterfly wing that will ultimately lead to your demise in the game wow
0: it's kind of like uh you don't want to stand out it's like the crabs you know where one
1: crab tries to crawl out and so everyone like tries to drag them back down Mm-hmm exactly. I mean, you do not want to stand out. You want to just kind of be under the radar waiting for other people to do stupid stuff as long as you can. You don't want people to know that you're super smart, but you of course want to help your tribe win challenges. You don't want your tribe to know that you're super athletic, but of course you want to flex those muscles when it comes to Gathering food and firewood and, and, and winning challenges. So it's really a game of nuances in that you want to help, you know, in the beginning stages of the game, you want to help your tribe continue forward, but you don't want to do it so much that people realize that you're, you're a strong player.
0: Do people ever think sandbag challenges early on to sort of like look weaker
1: and sort of hold it in reserve? Yes, there's certainly you know well documented cases of people stand back and challenges but i think for the most part trying to throw a challenge ends up typically not being the best strategy because just simple numbers you know if you win a challenge that means you're definitely going on to the next challenge but if you don't you have a 1 in 6 or 1 in 5 1 in 4 chance of going home that night even if you think that there's no chance that you would be the one going home so you know i personally don't know if i could ever throw a challenge just given my competitive nature and having seen how that's really been some people in the ass when they they think they're so smart and they throw a challenge and then they're the ones that go home or they have an idol or or immunity and they don't use it and all that yeah being in tribal under any circumstances is stressful and I would not voluntarily (laughs) go there by any means. Avoid, avoid. So you had said before
0: that there's a lot of time just sitting around and that it's actually like, you know, what we see is like such a small snippet. So what's the experience like? I mean, how do you mentally process all that time? And what are you really doing most of the time?
1: You spend so much time sitting around, waiting around. I mean, I spend a lot of time going around looking for food, looking for the idol, just kind of wandering, fishing, filling a time. But there are many hours that you're not allowed to do that. You know, if confessionals are being filmed on your beach, and that's where, you know, some member of the tribe gets singled out and brought by the producers to for an interview, that will take 45 minutes for each person. Um, so there will be three, four hours, where you're not allowed to go to most of your beach because they keep you know a huge buffer so you can't possibly hear anything that is being said or interrupt with the filming. When you go to challenges, you line up 10 minutes beforehand, you can't talk anymore. You sit on a boat for who knows 30, 45 minutes to go to the challenge or go to tribal. Then you're sitting in a tent beforehand while everybody goes through medical checks and gets mic'd up and you're waiting for them to set up you know, at the challenge site. So there's just so much waiting Well you can't say anything. You just sit there. You don't have your phone to look at. You don't have a book. All you have are your own thoughts of how you've gotten yourself into this miserable situation, how you're going to stay in the miserable situation so you can get to day 39 and bring home the million dollars and the, the title of Soul survivor. So It is incredibly boring at times, which is such contrast to it being, you know, one of the greatest adventures of your life. You know, it's the, one of the greatest adventures of your life with a lot of time, just kind of sitting around on the bench, waiting for time time to pass.
0: It's like feast or famine. So in that time, like, you get time obviously to strategize and think, but does it really just make you
1: overthink and sort of like obsess? I think it absolutely does that. I think you also kind of end up getting to a state of Zen where you just sit mindlessly without that much going on. I mean, personally, I couldn't think about strategy like 24 hours a day because you just end up replaying the same thoughts over and over. So you do end up like just kind of blanking out and just being this in this like semi-vegetative state where you just like don't even remember the time passing. Wow. So
0: so when we watch the show and I think, This is probably true in all reality TV is like, you know, they obviously they take the footage and they sort of like draw storylines to sort of like make it more exciting or to sort of like make the viewer think one thing and then surprise them with something else. But when you're actually there, do you really have a good sense of where everyone else is and like, you know, who's supporting whom and how they're going to vote? Or is it like you're just totally confused all the
1: time and just really have no idea what's going on? i think in most cases most contestants think that they have a pretty good sense of what's going on and that's why time and time again in the game there's blind sides because you know i think it's just human nature where your mind pieces things together and comes up with a story and you keep on telling it to yourself and you believe it but it's hard to of course know everything you you can't and it's also hard to imagine that there's all these other storylines out there so i think there's a lot of overconfidence in the game because you do have all that time to think and you you know come up with a storyline with the evidence that you have and you really buy into it but it is always changing and so you always have to question whether or not it's real and anybody that's watched survivor knows that you know everybody should be assumed to be lying all the time in order to have the best chance of not getting tricked. But if you think everyone's lying all the time, then it makes it hard to trust people, which you also have to do because you have to form alliances in order to continue to move forward in the game. It's not not a one player game. Is that where sort of business and Survivor
0: are sort of similar? Like you need to culture a certain like healthy paranoia, like
1: constant improvement, constantly reevaluating. Yeah, you know, in, in business at least, you know, you get to assemble a team and you're all working towards the same goal, but making a company successful. Survivor is very different because you assemble a team in the form of an alliance, but you know that your goals are very much opposed because each of you wants to ultimately behead the other and go forward <laughs> as the winner. So they're so they're very, very different in that regard. It's quite an image with the beheading, um,
0: exactly. But yeah, in business, I mean the com- the competitors, of course. You know, you're there. There are the other survivor contestants in that image, but but yeah, no yeah. Point. But
1: you're not you're not necessarily forming a team with you know Ben and Jerry or haagen That's true. You, yeah, know, you know that they're out to sell as much ice cream as they can, and you're out to do the same thing. And there's only so many hungry little mouths that want. Ice cream. So, you know, you're not sleeping with them, you're not breaking bread with them. You're not cuddling up at night trying to stay warm. You're, you know, clearly competitors with space. You know, in all likelihood you'll never even meet most of the people behind your competitors' companies. Yeah, that
0: that's quite a weird image is is having like a sleepover with all my sauce competitors. Like <laughs> That would be a that
1: would be a huge sleepover.
0: Yeah, that'd be weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So um, obviously the the show is called Survivor. So like how much of the experience is really about surviving and sort of like, you know, lack of food and the discomfort of, you know, shelter and insects and elements and how much is really
1: just about the gameplay and sort of the the social and strategic side of things? You can't separate one from the other. It is called Survivor, but at the same time, it's not like the producers are going to let anyone die from malnutrition. You know, they would pull somebody from the game if they were like truly going to starve. And 39 days isn't really a lot of time in order to starve to death, from what I understand. But, you know, the survival aspects and trying to not be miserable are very important. And I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why on day eight, when we did go to tribal council and it was a basically Peter and Liz trying to get Joe and Debbie to go vote with them, and Aubrey and me trying to get those two, Joe and Debbie, to vote with us. I think the reason that Joe and Debbie decides to go with Aubrey and I was, A, of course, because we were lovely people and not insufferable like some others on on our tribe. Of course. But, but we were feeding them. You know, I, I was their meal ticket. I was collecting 80% of the food that we were eating. And that goes a long way, at least early on, because people want to be comfortable. They want their strength. Uh, But, you know, watching the show, of course you can tell it's hot out there, but what you can't tell is really how much the lack of sleep and the discomfort plays into the game. I mean, those shelters that you build out of bamboo are so uncomfortable. Of course, they're very hard, and then they have sharp little things poking you, and then you're sleeping next to people that are snoring, and rats might be jumping on you and over you, uh, and it's chilly, and there's insects, so I would guess I slept like three to four hours a night out there. I mean, so you're just exhausted all the time, and that really is challenging going on, and it makes it hard to, to think clear about strategy going forward. That's interesting. I didn't,
0: I didn't know sleep versus
1: food. So sleep is really the, the thing. That's the more challenging for me. That was the hardest thing because I could get food to the point where I wasn't necessarily satiated, but I was certainly not hungry. Um, it wasn't like I went through in my case, uh, 19 days of just like miserable hunger. That wasn't the case, but, but being mentally exhausted was certainly a factor.
0: Wow. So you and I had also talked about sort of the idea of launching pads. So people come off of Survivor and, you know, obviously it's like, wow, you are on Survivor. But I mean, how much does it end up just being something exciting to talk about socially versus like launching a whole new career or like, you know, you can launch a new business based on this newfound fame? And how much do you think is that just true of whatever you think is true of like Survivor and all reality TV or just
1: Survivor? Yeah, I feel like there's a, kind of two types of contestants. There's those that want to play the game, compete, get the title of Soul Survivor, and of course, get the, the million dollars. And then there's people that think that getting onto a reality show, of course, arguably the most famous of reality shows is going to change your lives and be this platform to make them famous. But it's like at this point, there's over 500 people that have played Survivor you know, and then dozens of other reality shows. The people from the early shows, of course, had some fame, but it's just not like that. I mean, I think at the end of the day, America doesn't care if you're on something, if you're not showing real talent, you know, there certainly have been some people from Survivor that have gone on to some aspects of fame, but being on the game by itself um, just isn't that meal ticket that some people hope for.
0: So it's, it's more of a, a numbers kind of game. There's, there's just too many people or, I mean, I suppose if you're interesting enough and you use your time in a certain way, that might be something you could leverage. But I mean, in our business, certainly I found like that, you know, media coverage, like you could be on a major TV show
1: and the phone may not ring at all. Mm-hmm. So I think it's often overestimated. Yeah, I mean, in our industry, we had somebody else who was on Survivor, Brendan Sinat, Bare Naked Granola. He was on years ago. I mean, he was pretty well-known in the industry. I don't think that it like elevated his fame by any means. There have been a lot of people on Shark Tank in our industry as well at this point. I'm not necessarily convinced that that has really elevated anybody to, to star level. It's just it's additional exposure that makes you recognizable. But... You know, often the people on Survivor, of course, that are the memorable ones are also the most awful and sufferable ones. So that's not necessarily going to benefit you Yeah, in your, in your quest to fame.
0: The usual question of infamous versus famous. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Looking back, what, if anything, did you learn on Survivor that you think is a
1: lesson that that really applies to, quote-unquote, regular life? I can't say there were any necessarily great strategic learnings. It was more renewed appreciation for what you have, because when you go through 19 days of being, you know, pretty mentally exhausted and hungry and and stressed, it really puts things into perspective and makes you thankful to have a home to live in and access to food 24 7 to have as much as you want. It was more things like that of appreciation rather than like, oh, it's like I went to a Tony Robbins uh, seminar and it's going to change my life. I could definitely see that. So going back before Survivor, why did you start an ice cream
0: business in the first place? What about ice cream or, or this industry attracted you?
1: I had been working corporate America after after college, sitting in a cubicle, you know, making a salary and moving up, but just kind of bored. I wanted something that was more interesting and that would have more impact and Ice cream, I felt like something that I could start small, but scale up, make it earth-friendly in the form of being organic and, and giving back, um, which I did through Ice Cream for Acres, which bought land with the purchase of each pint of Three Twins ice cream, which just felt like it was something that I could do to have impact um, and, and shape my life and, and have a different story than just, just being bored and staying in the cubicle.
0: That makes sense.
1: I mean, did you have a particular passion for ice cream or you know, why that... I mean, I like ice cream, although maybe not as much as I used to, but it was more, <laughs> more about it. it was a simple product to learn. It was something that could start in a very small scale in the form of a scoop shop, but then also scale up to sell nationwide and beyond in grocery stores while still offering the same product. And of course, it's a lightly processed product, I would say. So using good organic ingredients, those ingredients would really shine through. And then, so you obviously started with the scoop shop for the reasons
0: you said, but what was sort of the thought process, you know, in the beginning and going like about having shops, you know, versus having a, a wholesale brand that you sell
1: in other people's stores? You know, having a small retail shop seemed like the best place to start for me because I had very limited resources with which to start a business. So I figured I would get the door open, have a physical location get people in based on you know reputation for you know outstanding ice cream and, and other you know things that put a halo around the brand and then expand from there. Starting as a wholesale company and selling to other companies seemed like a challenge with such meager resources because it just seemed like a very, you know, very much an uphill battle in order to get companies to try to carry your product when they probably never heard of you.
0: Right. So, I mean, looking back, would you have, you know, focused more on one versus the other or avoided one or the other?
1: Question. I mean, I think, I think the way that I started still, still made a lot of sense. You know, I think the, the biggest challenge I had was, was really ultimately pricing everything too low at too low of a margin, you know, and that included the wholesale side of the business. Cause we would sell, you know, core uh, ten core containers of ice cream. You know, trying to compete with the bigger companies, at least not being so far away from them price wise. But that put our margins really low and didn't really give us a great opportunity to run a profitable business.
0: So, if you put aside the pandemic, of course, which is you know a massive factor, would you have been better off just opening a bunch of stores over time and not doing wholesale?
1: I don't know. Stores are really hard as well. I mean. We did have some profitable scoop shops, but we also had some that were probably not really worth all the effort that you had to put into them. And just small retail in general is hard because you're dependent upon relatively low wage workers, i.e. high school students, college students that um, aren't necessarily the most dependent employees. And that's, that's not to say I didn't have some absolutely outstanding employees over time, but just overall, when the business is small enough, you can only justify having you know one employee work at a time during slower periods like you know the winter and weekday afternoons that so then you're having your entire business rely on a high school student which can be a a dangerous position to put yourself in you know over over the years there certainly be occasions when employees just wouldn't show up so your shop's not open or they wouldn't deliver great customer service so retail's hard you know and it's hard way to make a living with, you know, you need a lot of small shops to really make a solid living. And the logistics that go behind it, the human resources that go behind making those shops run smoothly can be very challenging.
0: Do you think that people underappreciate some of that? Because, you know, like my, I started out with a taqueria and I know like when we went to pick a location, that there's a whole science to picking a location that's so critical. Because um, mm-hmm. if you pick a bad location, you're just, it's an uphill battle the whole time, but like, it's so complicated. And then the other side is the the part you mentioned is the employee part, like Chick-fil-A and in, in and out their people, you know, they're, they're, you know, low wage workers, whatever. They are just so much better than other places like that. It's sort of like, it's hard to get that to actually happen. So, I mean, are those two and maybe some other, uh, you know, skill sets sort of underappreciated as
1: to how hard they are to do? Yeah, and part of that's just you know, if you like In and Out, this great example, they do have a lot of you know lower wage workers, but they also pay them more than most of their competition. Each location is generating millions and millions of dollars in revenue, so they have a scale where they can have a lot of low wage workers who can start with no experience, and they have the resources to train them. And of course, pumping out the volume of products that they do, then you have, you know, the scale so that you can have some really talented managers. And then, you know, of course, in the case of in and out they have hundreds of these locations. So you can develop training materials and programs and amortize that across hundreds of units versus trying to do that with a small chain, you know, a few stores. is very difficult. On top of you know your your other day-to-day responsibilities, versus having the scale in order to have people dedicated solely to that.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think I think people just think make a make a great uh, you know make a great product and and that's all you have to do. But it's there's a no. lot more to it.
1: Yeah, that's just the start of it. And Of course, making making a great product is often expensive, and then. So therefore you have a price disadvantage compared to you know very efficient high volume competitors like in and out right right
0: and and i think like both on the retail side and the product side like i mean would you agree that you know when we see products on the shelf with a big price discrepancy between small companies and big companies it's partly that the small companies tend to use better ingredients but part of it is just that just scale i mean it's just yeah you know
1: if we use the same ingredients we'd still be more expensive Exactly efficiencies I mean, look at, let's look at hot sauce of, you know, Tabasco making, let's say gallon of hot sauce versus Dave's insanity versus somebody making it in a small scale commercial kitchen, like the the cost per gallon, just for the labor and overhead for a Tabasco has gotta be just a small fraction of what it would be for you, which is also a pretty small fraction compared to what it is of, of somebody that's only selling 10 bottles a week.
0: Yeah. Volume
1: makes a difference
0: and contracting makes a difference and spreading setup costs over larger number of bottles. And yeah, it all makes a huge difference. So at what point with three twins, did you feel like things weren't going well or they're going the wrong direction? And then at what point did you think that, you know, it probably wouldn't survive?
1: There was never necessarily a time with three twins where I felt like, oh, we've made it because we always struggled to get to sustained profitability. So throughout the 15 year journey, there were always financial stresses and, but always, at least in the earlier years, earlier years, first 12, 13 years, just felt like, well, growth will ultimately get us out of this, that we'll scale up and, and we'll scale our way to profitability, but then About three years before the company ended up closing up was the the Three Twins brand started declining. It just stopped growing. And then we saw the brand itself start to decline. So that was was problematic. And that was kind of the first inkling that things might not actually work out. And then ultimately it was probably a few months before we closed where I thought like, oh, this is really a danger. This could actually, this nightmare scenario. Could actually happen and of course it is what happened and was the, the pandemic sort of the thing that put you over the edge yeah the pandemic was kind of a a factor but it's not to blame right like i don't know that we would still be in business if it wasn't because of the pandemic but what the pandemic did was eliminate any chance of a last minute solution you know we were looking for money from our japanese business partners they were bringing Outside money from elsewhere. And, you know, in the early weeks, months of the pandemic, just there was no capital at all, just dried up because people didn't know what was going to happen with the, the global economy.
0: And ultimately, I mean, did you close because, it, you know, ultimately you sort of just run out of cash? So you're sort of like,
1: yeah, I gotta go. Yeah, we, we closed up because if we didn't close up, we were going to be bouncing employees' paychecks and not be able to pay out their pay time off. So we wanted to take care of our staff, knowing that we could have stayed open another couple of weeks, but we would be doing a disservice to our employees who had been so wonderful and helpful in getting us to, you know, to the place that we got to. And that place being, you know, years of, of growth and success and building a, building a brand that people love.
0: And I mean, you mentioned obviously profitability as a goal, which, you know, some people in the industry would say is sort of old school. I mean, that's how certainly I've operated, but there's a lot of companies in the industry that sort of like seem like they don't care about profitability. They want to grow fast enough and far enough where they can sell out. So was that ever sort of a thought? Was was there a sort of a model? Like I'm going to do
1: this model versus that model. Well, and that profitability was not the focus early on. And that's what got us into trouble because... When I entered the natural food industry, you know, specifically in 2010, when we started selling to grocery stores, there was such an interest in natural food companies. So many of them were selling at high multiples of sales. And the notion was the profitability didn't matter, but you really to scale up and show that you are a growth company. And then somebody would buy you. And then they would use economies of scale to turn their company profitable. But What happened was we saw a lot of acquisitions, you know, a la Crave Jerky is probably the easiest one to point to that sold to acquirers from the conventional side of of the food market. And they didn't know what to do with them and they didn't succeed with them. They failed with them. They saw their, their growth go away and companies contract in size. And, you know, they lost hundreds of millions of dollars on those transactions. So by the time that You know, we got to a place where we started thinking about selling, A, not only were we not growing anymore, but B, what companies were looking for in order to make acquisitions had very much changed.
0: So do you think part of the sort of cautionary tale is sort of like, you know, if you grow with profit in mind, then, you know, you have a a longer runway. And, but if you grow with like the, I'm going to grow fast, I'm going to sell out. You sort of like you've lit the fuse and the fuse is only so long because if your growth stumbles and you're not profitable, then you don't have very long to achieve you know that profitability or some way to stay in
1: business. I think that's exactly right. but part of the challenge with that of course, is trying to grow a business profitably is extremely difficult because at small scale it's very hard to run a profitable food company. and often you know the tools that you have in order, to grow your company are competitive pricing, lots of promotions, lots of marketing, all things that cost a lot of money and are therefore contrary to the goal of running a profitable company. Right. So you know, it's extremely hard to grow rapidly and be profitable. Right, because you're competing against
0: companies that are losing money and so they're spending a lot more. So exactly. you have to be better positioned
1: or scrappier or have a better idea or something. Yeah, or they're just established companies that, you know, don't need to put a ton of money into marketing or paying for placements at grocery stores or they have economies of scale because they're much bigger. So, you know, all of those factors just makes it so hard to be competitive in the food space and grow profitably
0: so if you could do it again i mean is the only thing you would do differently sort of to price your item higher or were there other lessons that you've sort of learned from this that you could share out with other people
1: i mean there there are definitely all sorts of mistakes over the years but i think the you know biggest ones would be to build in more margin than we had get away from trying to grow at at any expense because we we sold a lot into conventional stores where we didn't necessarily think that it would have be a huge success in those stores, but you take on investor money, you have pressure to grow. And so definitely made decisions to get into retail accounts where they just never ended up being profitable, but you know, that was based on pressures to grow. So I would move away from that and be much more careful in where we sold our products to whom we sold our products to and to protect the margins. Right. So
0: strategically pick different retailers. Don't just take in our opportunities as they come
1: along kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Probably making do with fewer people rather than, you know, scaling up your organization in anticipation of growth, waiting until you have the growth and making do with the human resources that you have until you absolutely need to bring on more people because that ended up being you know, very expensive and probably something that didn't help the case to so be scrappier is that the is that what that is scrappier for longer mm-hmm.
0: and then do you hear the same thing about sort of the there's item value because we debate this in our organization and i hear other people do it too where like they want you to lower the price because that's better for consumers you're like well i need to raise the price and they're like well you can't raise the price and it's sort of like well. If you're a consumer, the way you think of it is, I'm willing to pay eight bucks for this. I'm willing to pay five bucks for that, or three bucks for that. So it's, you can raise the price, but you just have to raise the value perception with it. So there's always a way to like go out at different prices, but you just then have to adjust, you know, packaging, contents, messaging, positioning.
1: Right, It's, it's very hard to just bring about a significant price increase and how your consumer think that somehow they're still getting the same value that's something that you know we faced as we realized we couldn't save our way to profitability and we needed to get the profitability to keep the company alive we couldn't just increase our prices 20% because you get pushback from retailers you get pushback from consumers and we didn't have time to do things like change packaging so that ended up you know being a very painful chapters. we just felt stuck more than anything else.
0: So, you know, obviously this is the, you know, this, we're actually in 2021 now, but you know, this okay. and, and 2020, God, if you take it together, people have different like perspectives. And so like, obviously your know, business, you know, going under is tough and there's a pandemic. And so, you know, it's a tough year for you, but then, you know, there's people that like are going homeless or hungry during the same time. So like, How do you sort of internalize this in terms of like, you know, staying happy and staying feeling good about yourself? Like, how do you internalize this? Do you feel like unfortunate, like it was a terrible year? Or do you feel like it was a
1: setback, but you're going to be fine? Or like, how do you put it in perspective? I mean, personally, I feel Dickens said it best. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times because I had an impossibly difficult year with the business going under And. You know when we had lunch the other day spoke about how um, my fiance left me but i'm in a place now professionally where i'm feeling very fulfilled and have exciting things going on and frankly making more a lot more money than i was making i'm now in the best relationship of my life i have a new home that i'm very excited about so i think it's important to grieve and recognize that you've been through trauma and allow yourself to process that but to also put on your your big boy or big girl pants and get out of bed and continue to try to shape your life work towards that great life that you want to have it's also important i mean you and i both live in Marin county we've both had a lot of good fortunes in our lives and there are of course a lot of people that are going through even more difficult times but you know, trauma is trauma, and you can't just look and say, well, I have a roof over my head, so my trauma is, is less valid. And you have to understand that trauma is trauma. You're going through difficult periods, and you need to address those things and grieve and process and heal and not just say, oh, well, I shouldn't pity myself because somebody else has it worse. I mean, there's there's always someone that has it worse than you. There's always someone that has it better than you.
0: Right. So not to sound cheesy, is there a theme with you that like you're a survivor and if it is, and like, what does that mean? Is that like a, is surviving our perspective where like, you're like, you know, I grieve, I move on, I set new goals, I look for opportunity and I just move forward. Yeah. I mean, I I like to
1: say the journey is the reward. And of course, you know, we all kind of look towards that Emerald city of where we want to go. But if you're not enjoying you know, walking along the yellow brick road, you know, you're going to waste a lot of time where you're missing out on life and experiences and, and joy. Right. So I try to enjoy journey, even though at times it's Godforsaken often. Right. And when you
0: say enjoy, you mean big picture enjoy? Because obviously as a business owner and a you know on the show Survivor too, it's like there's many moments that are difficult or stressful or boring or or whatever but like you know you have to do that to succeed so it's sort of the big picture of like i'm generally enjoying my life and what i'm doing
1: but i yeah. think i think big picture and little picture because even in moments of complete misery i'll now give an experience from survivor you can have just moments of wonder and awe so our first night on the beach it wasn't shown on television but it poured on us almost the entire night. It filled up our like, cast iron containers that we had open with like three or four inches of rain. We were huddled underneath the half-built shelter, just shivering, freezing, and trying to stay warm and asking ourselves what we had gone into. And you're just sitting there for hours, just, just, just awful. And I realized that I saw something moving around us and I, I couldn't figure out what it was. And I realized that the leaves on some of the shrubs around us were glow-in-the-dark. And they were moving when they were getting hit with raindrops. And I've never never seen a glow-in-the-dark plant in my life. But the only reason, it was very faint, the only reason I could see it is because we were sitting out you know, in the dark, in the misery, for hours on end. So years on, that was six years ago almost. I mean, I can't necessarily experience that that misery it's i can remember back to like yeah that sucked but i get such delight in thinking back to that moment of awe and wonder seeing those trees and bushes just glow in the dark like like you're or something. so is that a perspective
0: do you think most people are open to seeing bits of wonder during tough times or
1: or is it is that a personality thing some people are and some people aren't I think it's definitely a perspective. I think you have to realize that even in moments of unfathomable suffering, there can still be moments of joy, you know, because if you wait purely for the good times to to experience that that joy and you cancel things out, if it's not perfect, you're going to miss a lot of the journey that can be quite rewarding. So for you,
0: obviously you have the the paint project now and a new relationship, but, you know, what would you like listeners... To know or or learn from this interview,
1: and what's next that you would want to share with people? I think a lot of people probably looked at me over the past bunch of years and thought like, oh, he's he's got it figured out. He's he's successful, and making much money and and happy. And you can't ever really tell what's going on behind the veneer. And I think everybody, even you know, people that are in heightened places of, of success, I think. People still have their own, you know, personal journeys and challenges and not to look at people with, you know, jealousy or envy and think like, oh, I wish I had that, but, you know, really look into your own lives and ask what you can do to have those moments of joy and wonder and to get yourself to your own personal Emerald City, but at the same time, you know, enjoy that, that journey down the yellow brick road for fear of sounding completely cheesy. (laughs) Okay, How cheesy on that one. I don't think it sounds cheesy. I think it sounds wise.
0: And is that something you could have said uh, uh, 15, 20 years ago? Or is that something that
1: is from experience? I don't think so. I think I probably learned more over the last year about the journey and making it rewarding and making sure you're on the right journey as well. I think I learned more over the last year than I probably learned over the past 15 or 20 Right. I know for me, I'm like,
0: I'm still trying to figure things out. And part of the value of talking to someone like you who has a lot of wisdom is, you know, get to reflect on our conversation later and say, oh gosh, you know, that one thing he said was, that was really true. And I hadn't thought about it that way. So mm-hmm. I really thank you very, very much for your time and appreciate you coming on and sharing. Cause I know uh, it's not always easy to, to share things. Yeah. It's been my pleasure, Dave. Thank you. Thanks. And I hope everyone enjoyed this. And that is Neil Copley. Give it up for Dave Hershkoff, everybody. You've been listening to The H-Spot on the Funnel Radio Channel. Never miss an episode. Be sure to subscribe at thehspotpodcast.com.